explained the text behind our call to worship. Uh, So with that, this week we are in Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. I have never in my life blown a duck call. I have never once tried to entice a turkey. I have never rattled deer antlers in the woods, hoping that uh, one might come forward, that I might be able to shoot it. It's my understanding, though, that the people who do those things give those calls. They try to entice those animals for the purpose to cause the animal you're targeting to come near to the one who's calling. The call goes out, and the one who hears it is drawn by that call toward the purpose of the caller. In the case of the duck, the turkey, the deer, uh, they get duped. They think that they're coming forward to find a mate. They think they're coming forward to find something they will enjoy. And what they are met with is lead, very fast lead going straight through their body. That's not quite what happens with the call to worship. And the call to our worship that we give today, hopefully all who hear it come forward, and rather than being duped, are met by the God of that call. They're met by the one who is calling them. What is a call to worship? Well, it's uh, something that's been a common practice throughout all of Christian history. Especially since the Reformation, the call to worship has been used as a way to mark the beginning of the worship service. To say that it has started, that the worship service is different from everything else that's come before. Once the call to worship is read, the service has officially started. It's there to call us to recognize the presence of God, to come before him with reverence, praise, and thanksgiving. The call ultimately doesn't come from whoever reads it. It doesn't come from whoever's standing in front of you. It ultimately comes from God, the God who's calling his people into his presence to be able to worship him. When we give the call, we're merely his earthly instruments, the mouthpieces of God. That's why the calls that we give should come from Scripture. Scripture as God's word is the most clear example of God calling his people to worship him. The most clear example of God saying something to his people. So, because Scripture is God's word, we use specific verses or phrases from his word to call people to begin worshiping him in this time and in this place. A lot of churches who have a call will read a different verse each week. They'll have a psalm that they read. Similar to what we do here with the benediction at the end of our service, where it's a different verse every time with a similar intent behind it. We are told over and over in Scripture to come, to praise, to gather in the worship of our God. So churches throughout the years have historically used a call to follow that scriptural practice, to call his people nearer to him in the worship of him, nearer to him, to hear from the words of God. But in many churches today, you aren't going to hear a call at all. We oftentimes don't have a call to worship. We don't have a verse that we read. We don't have a a phrase that we say. Many of us don't start the service with scripture or set aside a specific time, which is unlike anything else that happens in your life. Anything else that happens in the service. You'll often see that the service starts with announcements. Starts with a, a video. 
Maybe the band just kicks in. One, two, three, four. And the goal today isn't for me to denigrate churches that do that. I don't think it's wrong for them to do so. And in some ways, we kind of do, right? I say the announcements, and then I say the call to worship. That's how we begin. But the hope behind it, the the hope behind having a specific call to worship that we say is to mark this time off as different. Throughout the rest of your life, someone will go in and start saying something. It begins somehow. There's a way for it to start. Maybe that's a video. Maybe that's just a count-in. But here, in this place, this time, when you gather to worship God, the goal is for you to hear the call to worship and remember, this is why I'm here. This is the time that I come to do this. I hear God's call and I answer that in the worship of him. In this time, in this place, every week, for this hour. It's unlike anything else that happens in the rest of your life. You should hear the call and know that you're home. You should hear the call as a welcome into the presence of God to worship him with his people each and every week. The movies have previews. The concert has a countdown. The comedian has the opening act. But we as Christians have the call to worship. And over the next four weeks, I'll be explaining uh, the text behind this call to worship. Why our call to worship says what it says. I'll explain the text from which we pulled these quotes, these phrases. And I hope that by the end of these four weeks you'll begin to see those simple phrases for what they are. A call to worship God and a welcome into his presence in a way and with the truths that can only come from God. That as we hear these texts explained, when you hear the call, you will identify yourself with it. You'll identify people in your lives who should be hearing it. And you'll start to understand this is what we do when we gather. That's the kind of God who is welcoming us into his presence. So first of all, this week... We have the phrase, to all who are bruised and burnt, he will not break you. So to those who are bruised, we get that from verse 3 in our text today. A bruised reed, he will not break. So what is it to be bruised? Well, you guys are humans. You, You know what it means to be bruised, right? You've experienced bruising. Bruises are injuries which are typically not fatal, typically not prohibitive, And often not easily seen from the surface, but they are bruises all the same. They are injuries all the same. A bruised reed is hurt. It's affected in some way to put its continued existence in danger. Reeds are notoriously tall and slim. They're grown by the water. Their heaviest point is at the top. So they bend in the wind. They flow with just the slightest hint of a breeze. The whole reed is waving and swaying back and forth. They look like they could crack and break at any moment. And that's a normal reed. One that's bruised, one that has a slight imperfection in its structure, is in severe danger of actually breaking at any point. Because as it bends and blows, if there's one single imperfection, it will break. And the point at which it breaks is going to be where it's bruised. They already have a weakness. They already have a pressure point. If it breaks, it breaks at the bruising point. So to be bruised is to be hurt and to be in danger of breaking. That's what a bruised reed is. But who is bruised? These bruises apply to people can often look like any number of things. They can be emotional, physical, or spiritual. Emotional bruising 
could be something as simple as disappointment. Something didn't go quite the way that you expected it to. It might be as complex as the grief that you feel after the loss of a loved one. As complex as all those emotions that are swirling around within you at that moment. You may feel angry, sad, or terrified at many points in your life. Perhaps even from one week to the next. Those who are emotionally bruised may even appear to be perfectly fine. Just like anybody else in this room. But on the inside, where you can't see, where you might not notice, they are barely holding it together. All it takes is one cross word. All it takes is one cross look. One more disappointment. And they don't know if they're going to be able to make it through to the other side of that disappointment. A physical bruising is obviously the the easiest for us to see. It's the easiest for us to tell because it looks like a bruise. It might look like a cast. Might look like a crutch. For some of us in this room, it, it may look like blood test results. It might look like pill bottles or chemo treatments. Perhaps it may even look like some kind of abuse for you. The physically bruised are dealing most immediately with the bruising of the body, yes. But we know that a bruising of the body doesn't usually stay that way. Our bodies, our souls are so intertwined in this life. That that which begins in one area obviously bleeds over into the other. Endure a physical bruising long enough and you will be emotionally bruised. You may even be spiritually bruised. Spiritually bruising might even be the most common of all of the bruisings. The spiritually bruised may be dabbling in sin. They might be just sticking their toe in the water of depravity. They might just think, maybe just this once won't hurt. I'll just click on that link for a few seconds, and then I'll get off of it. I'll just hate that one person that I know for a few days, and then I'll get over it. I'll just neglect my spiritual duties for a short season in this life. They may be affected by doubt of God's existence or maybe doubt of his goodness. The spiritually bruised are probably asking questions like, how could God do that? Does any of this matter? I have to say, when we talk about who is bruised... It might be simpler, easier, quicker for us to say, who's not bruised? Doesn't that sound like you? Maybe not today, but at some point. If you haven't been bruised, you will be bruised. It might not be that today you feel that way, but maybe next week. Maybe next month. Maybe last year. You might have just come out of some particular bruising ordeal. We all in this room, every single one of us, have been are now or will be a bruised reed at some point. So when we come together as a church every week, but particularly on those days when you identify yourself as one who is bruised, before the worship service begins, before we do anything else, it's my hope that you will hear every week, but especially on the weeks that you need it desperately, This promise that to all who are bruised and burnt, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, will not break you. Because he won't. He doesn't seek your destruction. He won't break you. He's not going to find that one place where you are most vulnerable, most wounded, and exploited to cause you harm. Who else could we say that about? Who else knows every single weakness that we could possibly have and is never going to use it against us even once? Our spouses know us better than everyone. 
and they are imperfect. Christ knows you better than your spouse, and he won't use any of that against you. He doesn't use your weaknesses against you. He uses your weaknesses as a way to reveal his strength to you. For him not to break you before it's anything else is an utterly unique act of mercy toward you. You can't find this kind of mercy, this kind of heart for these people anywhere else. It is better than you deserve simply if he does not break you. But we know that he does so much more than simply not destroy you, not come across the bruised reed and bend it, break it at that bruising point. When the text says, when we say that Christ will not break you, it's getting at the fact that he will do the opposite with you. We know that because this text is taken up in uh, Matthew 12. It's cited there because he's quietly healing all who come to him. He's avoiding the Pharisees who are trying to kill him. He doesn't break the bruised reed, and we know that he doesn't break the bruised reed because he heals the bruised reed. He comes across that which is bruised in danger of being broken, and not only does he not break it, but he heals it. He fixes it. Psalm 34, verses 18 through 22 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Not only does he not break the bruised reed, not only does he not break the one who is wounded, he binds it up. He binds up their wounds. He is near to those who are brokenhearted. So on the days when you feel bruised to the point of breaking, know without the shadow of a doubt that this church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who will not break you. That's the God we proclaim. That call goes out to all who are bruised, but it also goes out to all who are burnt, still in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What is it to be a faintly burning wick, to be burnt in this sense? Well, you guys have seen candles. A wick that's faintly burning is a flame that's about to go out. I think whereas the bruised reed probably deals more with injury, the faintly burning wick is more about stamina. Perhaps at one point the candle was burning brightly, strongly. But now look at it. It's the tiniest of flames. Maybe even just the embers that are still glowing. You can't even tell if it's actually still on fire anymore. Maybe just the faintest glowing spark with the tiniest chance to once again burn brightly. That's a faintly burning wick. So who are these people? Who are those who are faintly burning? This concept of faintly burning applied to people is going to look probably like someone who's tired. But it may also look like someone who's just lost. Someone who's adrift in their life. A person faintly burning is probably at the end of their rope. Whether due to the fact that there's just too little wick left to continue its flame. There's too much wax to be overcome. Maybe it's been burning so long that there's more char there than wick. A faintly burning candle is on its last leg. It's tired. It's used up. These people probably feel like Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings. Butter scraped over too much bread. 
it feels like there's just not enough life left to make a difference. Or, or maybe it's not that the faintly burning wick is so tired, but maybe it just feels like it's lost its purpose. Maybe the candle burning within you isn't going out because of exhaustion, but rather because you no longer see the use of this light. What's the point? Why keep it going? Why care that the flame's about to go out? Maybe you feel lost, adrift, without purpose in this world and in this life. Like the seed that's sown among the thorns in the parable of the sower, the cares of this world have weighed heavy on you. And you don't see a reason for what you do anymore. You don't see a reason for why you would care if there is a tomorrow. For why we gather here anymore. You don't see a reason for the faith that we proclaim here anymore. What's the point? Similar to the bruised reed, you feel like there's just too much of everything around you. It's pressed around this person so close, so tightly, that there's just not enough oxygen left for the flame to continue. Ernest Hemingway was talking about something similar uh, in A Farewell to Arms when he wrote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong at the broken places. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you're none of these things, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. Again, who does this not describe at some point? Who among us has not had times, days, seasons, when we looked around us and thought, I just don't know if I can do this that much longer. I don't know if I can keep going the way that I am. The good time, the payoff, it just never really seems to come. It's like you just keep working and working as hard as you can, and you keep coming up against a brick wall every time. And even when the good times do come, those days never stay as long as you thought they would. They never seem quite as good as you thought they were going to. The hype doesn't seem to live up to the experience. We all have been, or will be, faintly burning at some point. So again, when you walk through the doors of this worship center, when we begin our worship service in this sanctuary, I want to tell you, even on the days when you don't feel like you need it, that the one who feels burnt is welcome here on behalf of Jesus Christ, because he will not quench you. You're welcome here because the Christ that we serve is not going to douse your flame. He doesn't look at the faintly burning wick and decide that, you know what, things might just be better if that just went out. On the TV show Survivor, which has been around for, I don't know, 30, 40 years at this point. It's been around for forever. That show is a game where people are thrown into a harsh environment, and they're called to survive, literally and uh, in the game, by outwinning, outplaying, outlasting their competition. In that game, because you're on a deserted island with a film crew and a medical crew and all the other people that are on there with you, uh, fire is absolutely essential. If you have no fire, you're not going to last long. And to make this clear, to make that metaphor uh, play out in their minds, everyone in the game has torches, which are going to stay lit as long as you are in the game. When you are voted off the island, when you leave the game, what they do is they douse your torch. They quench your flame. Because their life in the game has ended. Their flame's gone out. As long as you have your flame, you have life in the game of Survivor. But Jesus never does that. He never looks at the torch that's burning 
and thinks, I'll just douse this. He never quenches the flame that's about to go out. He never puts out your torch and says, enough is enough. You're never voted off of his island. Rather, like the bush from which God called to Moses, he equips his people to burn continuously without being consumed. He fans their faith into flame, delicately, with just the right amount of air, at just the right time, in just the right place. He breathes life into the flame. Rather than dousing it, he fans it. He does not quench the smoking flax. Your life will end, but your faith will not be quenched by Christ. So on the days when you feel like you've got nothing left in the tank, on the days when you're just so tired of all the stuff that's surrounding you, there's just too much of this life. It feels like the world is breaking you in particular. When you start to wonder what the point of all this is, know that you are welcome here in this room at this time in this place to meet with the God who does not douse a faintly burning wick. Because to all who are bruised and burnt, he will not break you. We know what he will do from this text. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The end of verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This umbrella term is the goal. It's what he's actually doing as God's servant, with his spirit, humbly and steadfastly. When he does not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking wick, he is faithfully bringing forth God's justice. As God's servant, he does this exactly in line with the will of God. It's not as if God in the Old Testament was impatient or wrathful toward his people. And then Jesus came along to show us the softer side of God, the compassionate side of God. When Jesus came to bring forth justice to the nations, he did so as God's chosen servant. The one in whom God delights. Jesus took on a body, became man, though he was God, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and came back to life, defeating sin and defeating death, all as the servant of God, enacting God's own plan. God, who has no body, sent Christ to take on a human body. That Jesus, though he was God and similarly had no body, took on that which was physical, took on a body for us. He's revealing who God is in a way that we can clearly see, in a way that we can clearly understand. That Jesus is the one who doesn't break bruised reeds or quench faintly burning wicks. That Jesus from verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So as he works as the servant of God, he does so with the spirit of God. He's acting and moving with the Spirit of God upon him. He is filled with the Holy Spirit perfectly in a way no other human being has ever been filled. And he was already God to begin with. He was already God before the Spirit filled his flesh. But not only is Jesus God's servant, enacting the will of the Father, which is also his own will, but he is also enacting justice with the Holy Spirit upon him. Just as the God of the Old Testament has not changed Into the New Testament, the revelation of God as Jesus is not a different revelation from the other persons of the Trinity. 
when we see Jesus, we see both the Father and the Spirit because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. When he enacts God's justice as his servant, he does so with the Spirit as the human actor according to the plan and the power of the Trinity. To say that Jesus will not break you is to say that God, the triune God, will not break you. So he does so as the chosen servant with the Spirit of God, but also humbly. Look at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He enacts the justice of God faithfully and humbly. He doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice. He doesn't make it heard in the street. He was born to a lowly virgin in a lowly manger in lowly Bethlehem to live a simple life as a carpenter, to overthrow the powers of sin and death, not by assembling an army, not by setting up an earthly kingdom and rule and authority, but rather to come and to die on a cross, nailed to a tree which only grew by his own power given to it. His work of accomplishing justice, of making atonement for his people, of preparing the way for his eventual return when he will finally make his justice fully known, that work in his life, in his incarnation, that's a humble work. It involved the God of the universe stepping out of heaven and walking around as a man in his own creation. In fact, if we were just preaching through Isaiah, and we got to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, the primary focus of this passage, of this text, when we get there, is on the humility of Christ as he faithfully brings forth justice. Humility is the primary point being made by Christ not breaking bruised reeds. It's saying that his justice is so quiet, so humble, that he can pass by a bruised reed without breaking it. His work is so stealthy, he doesn't even quench a faintly burning wick, though it's so close to going out. Now, that aspect of his work and how he's revealed himself says something about who he is. That's why we're able to make the leap from his justice being so humble that he doesn't break bruised reeds to who he is dealing with his people also not breaking bruised reeds. That's how we're able to take the, the truth of his humble justice and apply it to ourselves as if we are the reeds, as if we are the wicks. We can say that this is true for us in this way because we know that these aspects of his heart for his people are true in this passage. We know it's true again when it's taken up in Matthew. And we know that that's consistent with the rest of what, what Scripture says about Christ. That he brings forth justice humbly, faithfully. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote a book called The Bruce Reed, which focused on this central metaphor. And he went on for about 200 pages about the heart of Christ and how he deals with bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. This is not a new idea, but it's an idea we need to remember. That this is who Christ is and how he works. And as he works, he will bring forth justice steadfastly. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He does so steadfastly as he establishes his justice. He doesn't grow faint or discouraged in his work. He does not get bruised himself, which is another possible translation of that word discouraged here. He will continually work humbly and steadfastly until he has established his justice in the earth. For God's people... Know that your day is coming. 
You may be bruised now, but you won't be. You may not be burning bright, but you will be. Though his justice seems slow, though you are bruised, you will not be broken before his justice comes. Though your wick is burning faintly, you will not be quenched before his justice comes. If it seems slow, wait for it, because it will surely come. We know why he's waiting so long. We know how to wait in the meantime, partly from Second uh, Peter verses uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 3. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is not slow. It may seem slow, but wait for it. It will come. His time is not our time. He's not captive to time as we are. He's not waiting. He is actively moving toward that day, toward that time. And he is not slow to fulfill his promises toward you. So in the meantime, while you wait for his justice, which for his people means the beginning of true life rather than death, you can know that you are welcome here in this place every week to worship this God who saves, to worship this God who sent his son, who deals with sinners in such a way that he does not break the bruised reed and he does not quench the faintly smirning, faintly burning wick. That's the God we serve. That's the God that calls you to worship him week in and week out with every breath that you take. He is patient toward you, waiting for you to come to him. He is not slow in the way that we would count slowness, but he is patient toward his people, wishing that you would come toward repentance. He is calling you to all who are bruised and burnt. This church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who will not break you. That's the God we serve. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to come before you, to worship you reverently, with praise, with worship, each and every week. Thank you for calling us to the worship of you. Thank you for making that the purpose through which we can find our purpose. Thank you for showing us who you are, for sending Christ as the revelation of yourself in such a way that when we see him, we know God. And thank you for being the God who deals so softly so steadfastly, so tenderly with his people that he doesn't break us at the point where we are bruised. Thank you for being so patient with us, for desiring us to live so much that though we are faintly burning, rather than douse us, you fan us into flame. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.